0: Climate Energy Talk is part of Norway's Climate Festival, Bergen Chapter, Klimafestivalen et Undretol, and is endorsed by the Norwegian Climate Foundation, Norsk Klimastiftelse, and Juridika Insect. The first two episodes are released as part of pre-festival events, while the third episode will be aired to mark the beginning of the Climate Festival in June 2021. Welcome to Climate Energy Talk, a series of three podcasts powered by the Center on Climate and Energy Transformation at the University of Bergen, Norway. The podcasts are produced by mainstream AS for the University of Bergen. My name is Esmeralda Colombo, I'm a lawyer and research fellow at the Center on Climate and Energy Transformation, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this journey. the theme of this series has risen forcefully during these pandemic times, and it's quite simple. How can science help us in the climate crisis? Can it depolarize and democratize the debate on climate change and boost green innovation? As you see from the title, Climate Energy Talk, in this series we drill down on the paradox of energy policy. It is the sector most contributing to climate change, but the one where we find the least consensus. Should we keep fossil fuel extraction? Should we divest? Should we bet on the electrification of our cities? In this first podcast, we lay the groundwork for a discussion on science and climate policy. We are going to talk about epistemic communities namely communities of knowledge that can support the energy transitions required for a stable climate. In today's podcast, we're joined by an excellent speaker, Associate Professor Shatil Rumetweit. Shatil is a philosopher with an interest in science, technology and society. He wrote a PhD dissertation on the social, legal and political aspects of biotechnology, and currently takes an interpretative approach to the governance of science and technology. Chatil has been awarded a number of grants from Norway and the European Union, and holds a broad experience in interacting with policymakers, civil society, researchers, and even regulators. Thank you for being with us, Shatil, and welcome to Climate Energy Talk. Thank you. This first podcast is... Epistemic communities, the role of scientists for deep decarbonization. Let us start head on, Chatil. Can science depolarize and democratize the debate on climate change?
1: Um, I'm not completely sure that science can depolarize and democratize, or even that this should be its role. I mean, everybody is not part of a scientific community, and... uh, scientific communities has limited uh, membership. So uh, this limitation of membership, of, of access to the community, is part of what provides science with legitimacy and authority. So if everybody could become a scientist, then what would the point be? I also do not think it is strange that the sector most contributing to climate change, the energy sector, is mired in polarization and controversy. Rather, this is what we should expect in a highly politicized domain where the the stakes are, are so high and where there is so little disagreement, so little agreement. So I think we need to build new coalitions across science and society, taking new directions and starting points for social mobilization. Perhaps such coalitions can promote transitions to more sustainable ways of living, producing and consuming. Uh, so, as far as I can tell, we are still quite some way off here.
0: That's a very good point, actually. More broadly, than what are the main roles of scientists at present?
1: Well, that's a complicated issue, but as a starting point, I would mention two typical roles that are prominent in today's debate climate. So, the first we could call... Speaking Truth to Power. This is the classical epistemic community position, one uh, which with which many scientists still identify. The underlying imagination and idea here is that scientists pronounce their findings, understood as facts, and politicians and policymakers respond, and broader society follows. Hence Politicians and society ought to follow the science, as we hear frequently, also following the uh, COVID pandemic. And this is the proper way to make good decisions. However, if you look at uh, at how things play out in real life, if you look at them empirically, this is hardly how uh, the science policy interface or how politics work. Uh, As the climate debate started to proliferate and rise on political agendas, let's say through the 1980s, 1990s and 2000s, and as the questions became ever more pressing and urgent, many climate scientists realized that this model was flawed. Things, politics, society, people and institutions simply do not work like that. They do not simply listen to the facts and take the appropriate actions. Rather, the climate scientists suddenly found themselves in highly politicized contexts where their statesma- statements were being questioned, actively undermined by people with, uh, with different agendas and where their facts were being questioned and manipulated. So that is one, that is one model and, and some of the problems that it has run into. A continuation of this position can be found today Uh, which is perhaps uh, just an intensification of the same uh, position, we find it in responses to a so-called post-truth problem, post-truth public condition. So those who use the term post-truth, alternative facts or fake news, do so mainly in a derogatory way. They use it to describe their opponents as unenlightened, as populist, as anti-science and the like. And to simplify just a little, they, they also think that we need to strengthen the role of facts in public debate. And so a number of fact checkers have started to appear in public life, providing new sources of, uh, of uh, allegedly more trustworthy scientific findings and fact. However, experience and research on cognitive frames, on the narrative nature of experience and so on, demonstrate how this approach is not likely to convince people, it it is mainly likely to convince those who already believe in it. So to cut this short, I think these are two positions, but I think we need to look for other solutions. The problems relate to quite profound institutional matters. So not just matters of scientific facts, but but, uh, matters of uh, power relations, and quite profound um, societal institutional arrangements. If you take Norway, up until the present we keep pumping up oil in quite large quantities, and new fields are open up to exploration and extraction. Approximately 30% of economic activity of the country is bound up with oil and oil-related activities, Why should people all of a sudden start pronouncing themselves as promoters of climate justice and sustainability if their jobs depend on this not happening? And what are they to say or believe when the entire political and state system commit to these policies, policies, including elite politicians and policymakers? Is it not more honest in a way to say, to hell with it, let's keep pumping until the last drop of oil runs out? Is it any better to put your faith in climate quotas or clean energy under the promise that these problems will be taken care of in the future by technology or by the markets? So the point of me mentioning these broad coalitions across science and society would have to to first realize that this state of affairs is not sustainable The way we are doing things now are not heading in the right direction. So secondly, we would need to mobilize in ways that are both politically, scientifically, technologically and economically sound. And this may become very interesting indeed, but may also require us to give up on some dearly held beliefs. For instance, the expectation that all things, including material well-being, are going to keep increasing and growing. I think though that this realisation is starting to creep in since effectively the world economy may have been actually shrinking since the economic downturn of 2008.
0: Indeed, and the world economy has been shrinking lately with the coronavirus pandemic, making our dear beliefs even more fragile. So you've just provided us with an illuminating trajectory on what it may mean to be a scientist nowadays. One needs to be realistic about the limited consensus on climate and energy matters, and broad coalitions across science and society may mobilize, but you pointed out that they must do so in a politically, scientifically, economically, and technologically sound manner, right? So having gotten to the core of today's podcast, let us now take a step back to the story of today's podcast or how I found out your philosophical activities. So the story of today's invitation started at the University of Bergen during a meeting on the Sustainable Development Goals and Science Diplomacy. Can, should, must scientists be diplomats and help policymakers with their knowledge? This was the question at the meeting. And another question was, can all scientists build communities of knowledge, also called epistemic communities? According to political scientist Peter Hess, epistemic communities are networks, often transnational networks, and knowledge-based experts who enjoy social authority contribute to the development and circulation of causal ideas and have seen their ideas institutionalized within state policies and practices and this includes also international treaties but the conceptualization of peter has was confined to the natural sciences i questioned this limitation asking myself and the other participants at that meeting at the university of bergen that i mentioned before whether social scientists lawyers like me can actually form epistemic communities. For instance by working, collaborating with natural scientists in climate change litigation, which is fast rising. And at the meeting I was recommended reading your scholarship settle which can indeed provide a vision on epistemic communities that is alternative to HASS vision. Uh, I found uh, I found it very interesting to see that you have extensively dissected the topic of responsible research and innovation, which is a type of knowledge-making that is cross-counting and includes stakeholders, so not just scientists. I liked it a lot. So how did you start your interest in epistemic communities, networks, and can you explain responsible research and innovation, RRI, to our listeners?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, I started working on this concept of the epistemic community uh, together with colleagues in a project we ran from 2012 to 2016 called EPINET, or Epistemic Networks. Mm. Our observation was, amongst others, that firstly, scientific research is increasingly carried out as large-scale projects. Is frequently bound up with cross national infrastructures aiming to address some societal problem or issue. So, for instance, the, the realization of a digitalized electricity grid, the so called smart grid, across Europe and beyond is an example of this. So, and of course, this is this um, large scale nature of scientific research is not something that we discovered, it's a a mainstay. Everybody studying science policy, science and technology studies are aware of this development. Further, we also observe that increasingly the contributions of social scientists, some humanist scholars and legal scholars are mobilized uh, as co-creators within these large-scale projects. Some of this takes place under the heading of RRI or Responsible Research and Innovation, which is um, a relatively new uh, academic and policy development that is that aims to bring together uh, all of these different fields of investigation and research and policymaking with the goal of improving science-society relation, let's say. So, What we did was to look at at this kind of development also as as, um, uh, epistemic networks. There is a long prehistory here involving a number of fields uh, of, of practice and of research on the intersections of science and society. And this includes environmental and climate science, which is what Peter Haas was portraying in his works in the early 1990s. But as I touched upon already, the relations between science and society, they have been changing rather uh, radically and rapidly. And Haas' concept of science must be partially at least updated. His concept was still one where science speaks truth to power, as as described before. And of course, for many and scientists, this is still the case. This is how they uh, think of themselves and of, of their task, how they think of the scientific ethos. For instance, climate scientists have frequently chosen the strategy to withdraw when they are criticized, for instance, on political grounds or on the grounds that they have not sufficiently dealt with the uncertainties of their own research or that that, uh, the, the facts could be somehow presented differently. This indicates that they remain with an identity and a scientific ethos, according to which uh, that, that is similar, actually, to what Peter Haas described. So according to this ethos, this self-understanding, their, the role of climate scientists is to state the facts, and then it is the task of others to decide upon the political and societal steps, so policymakers and politicians mainly, but also citizens more generally perhaps. Yet there are other sciences and other approaches, that, uh, including engineering fields, that are becoming much more prominent and that that are differently conceived and they are oriented more towards making and doing things, the creation of of new uh, processes and products, innovation and so on. And these fields that can also be called scientific, they function differently. If your goal is to build a smart grid to enable the inclusion of more renewable energy sources, for instance, You will not be stopped simply because somebody questions your scientific understanding of of a certain problem. Rather, you will seek out other means and measures for building around the problem. So you don't withdraw, you don't uh, don't dispute the the way the facts have been uh, questioned or constructed, but you simply try out different solutions. And this is a different way of operating than the classical epistemic communities and the classical image of scientists of speaking truth to power and and remaining neutral in political terms. On similar terms, in many of these large-scale projects, social scientists and legal scholars will be invited on board, or at least they will be offered funding on quite competitive terms On the promise that they can deal with some of the societal ethical or legal hindrances or challenges in the making of new infrastructure
0: so you mentioned renewables climate change your chapter on interdisciplinarity and climate change written with silvio funtovic and roger strand you consider how Climate change epitomizes global problems in which stakes are high, decisions are urgent, facts are contested, and uncertainty cannot be eliminated. So how do we get out of the trap of not deciding or deciding in regressive, non imaginative ways? How can social scientists help?
1: Well, let me try to answer your question with an example and perhaps in a slightly descriptive way. For instance, there is opposition to renewable energy sources. Uh, in Norway this happens uh, a lot in the case of onland wind farms where we have seen huge scale, uh, large opposition to these kinds of, uh, of uh, infrastructures being built. So in these cases perhaps an uh, ethnographer, an anthropologist or a sociologist could reveal to the developers why people are opposed and how the problem could be avoided or perhaps framed in a different way that would make the opposition go away. Or how could you deal with concerns about privacy arising in the smart grid, which is predicated on on the processing of huge amounts of personal uh, information also arising within people's homes. Increasingly, uh, legal scholars, but also risk managers and privacy engineers are called upon for solutions to such problems. Um, but, but this, of course, poses some tricky questions. Are these, are these scholars, are these epistemic communities taking sides? Are they working uh, for the powerful? Or, or should they also somehow be representing the local populations who oppose these wind farms? This is a tricky question. And, and maybe this is uh, an important task for academic practitioners, for researchers to, to stay somehow impartial and, and to, to be able to say things that are relevant for both sides in a conflict. Uh, and maybe this is a, a, um, an important task for academic research and education in the, in the future. But to sum up, the networking between different disciplines has intensified. It cuts across social, natural and engineering disciplines. It cuts across national boundaries and it extends deeply into societal processes, meanings and values. So today science is much more of a social enterprise and also an economic one. It's expected to provide economic growth and prosperity. And this is a quite marked difference to the ways in which science was practiced and and publicly projected, its public role, only 40 or 50 years back. So
0: science has more of a social enterprise than 40, 50 years back. You said, I like it. It sounds like the direction we need now, even though controversies on climate change, climate science are just the norm. But in your works, you argued that we cannot really get rid of those controversies, that critical and sceptical voices cannot be silenced and doubts can never be entirely eliminated Exante, is the implication of this in our past truth society and for those in charge of making decisions, the policymakers, but also the judges?
1: Yeah, I think there is a need to remember that uh, consensus is uh, is frequently only the outcome of a uh, carefully conducted and perhaps slightly lucky scientific process, but science is also full of controversy. And when science is called upon to to reply to uh, societally controversial issues, there will usually not be one scientific answer and and and, and this idea that there should be only one scientific answer can be used to silence controversy and to silence important perspectives to be brought to the fore. So I think there is a need for both institutional and ecological change, but, but such, such change must be brought about by broad coalitions stretching across science and society. And here scientific counter voices should also play important roles. So a kind of science advocacy by broad coalition, I'm, I mean not just the ordinary suspects, which are state actors, large corporations and the occasional NGOs. I think we also need broader se- segments of the populations to take part and and uh, to get organized. And this will only happen when li- livelihoods, fundamental goods and everyday services are realized to be under threat. So I think this is the r- direction in which we are moving, for good or bad, and I also think we as academic uh, researchers and educators, we also need to plan for this uh, and prepare for this situation where we may have to enter into more conflictive questions.
0: Let us now move to something fearfully close, the pandemic and the post-pandemic worlds we want to inhabit. Your research on epistemic communities emphasizes possible futures and the desirability of specific imaginations and visions in innovation. I really appreciated your language and thoughts talking about rebuilding during and after the pandemic, in which ways you think epistemic communities can work together and give us a vision. What are the three top issues you can think of to work on in terms of decarbonization, for instance?
1: Yeah, this is, uh, thank you. This is an interesting question. I'm I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I think, of course, the pandemic should be, it should serve as a wake-up call for all of us. And I I mean all of us in in the sense of globally. And yes, the emphasis on somehow addressing and controlling uh, various possible futures has further accelerated and intensified with the pandemic so this was already quite prominent these possible futures have been uh, been um, a strong tendency of science uh, society interfaces over the last 40 years perhaps but i think it has accelerated and intensified as i said with the pandemic and for for science i mean think of all the preprints that are now circulating with none or weak peer control this is this is an effect of this that that the, of acceleration and a time pressure that is becoming so tight that we think it's okay to, to just pour scientific uh, results into the public domain without this proper control, perhaps just going directly to the media when you have a, a, a nice result that you want to promote. So, but this is difficult for policymakers. Who are they? who are they supposed to believe? And they also need to respond now and preferably faster than the neighboring countries. So they are also under strong pressure. Uh, one of my intellectual heroes, uh, the science and technology scholar Bruno Latour, has argued that the Corona pandemic should be seen as a trigger for profound reflection on what on earth it is that we are doing, competing amongst ourselves like this. The main question, says Latour, should be how we could exit, step out of, or remove ourselves from the present economic system, which remains predicated on ever more extractions of, of ever scarce and natural resources and increased competition for, for the same resources. Um, I think it's also interesting to observe how policies are occurring more in real time and as coordinated globally. We have become ever more dependent on large digital systems and infrastructures for a number of of activities and necessities, and information is being gathered from Asia, from the US, from Africa, from Latin America, from Europe, and compared almost in real time. So as researchers and educators within universities, I think we should think about how we could possibly, and as students, not to forget the students are the most important here, We need, because they are the future, I mean, but we need to think about how we could possibly democratize the means of communication, which are increasingly also the means through which we carry out our research, our teaching, and our educational trajectories. But I have to say, I do not really see how this can be done at present, except by perhaps breaking up the monopolies of Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and others. And This would again take more broad coalitions to be built across science, technology, economy, politics and everyday life.
0: We have come to the end of our podcast. Before concluding, let me add a closing and a question. This past year has epitomized the centrality of scientists for our welfare and survival. Scientists have also engaged as science diplomats, as we said, To this point, in one of your writings, Shatil, you recommended focusing not only on the content but also on the style of science communication. You wrote, high production values and realistic aesthetics, together with celebrity voices, might be much more compelling materials in representing futures than black and white pamphlets with dense text. I found it very compelling and true indeed. Scientists still are not celebrities and I write black and white pamphlets. So what would you recommend to them still thinking of how to communicate on deep decarbonization?
1: Yeah, um, again, this is a complicated question because uh, as scientists, we, are, we find ourselves between competing goals and needs and values. Um, There are some scientists working today who master the art of communication and self-promotion very well. They are masters of media narrative and are frequently invited to provide advice, but also to provide legitimacy to high-level political agendas and circulating in high-level policy circles. A new figure has emerged over the last 40 years or so of the scientist-entrepreneur, a kind of visionary figure who becomes a central node or hub in the new and emerging networks, always creating new relations and connections. This would be more of a charismatic figure, setting out great promises, using figurative language and persuasive rhetorics. An example would be the, the American biotech entrepreneur Craig Venter, who set out to, he became known when he set out to compete with the public project to sequence the human genome in a privately for-profit project, for project. Or think about all the researchers appearing on TED Talks, um, setting out their visions and communicating in new and perhaps more engaging ways. Whereas I'm a bit tired of some of these visionaries, actually, perhaps we also need to, something like this, perhaps more aiming for public and collective mobilization towards more sustainable societies.
0: This final thought is a great way to round up our conversation, coming back to the core of our podcast today. Epistemic communities, the role of scientists for deep decarbonization. Chatil, thank you so, so much for being with us today. It has been wonderful to host you and better understand the role of scientists on the intersection between philosophy and technology. Notwithstanding the crisis we are experiencing, we are left with your thoughts provoking insights on the imaginations and visions we need now and in the future. So thanks again, Chatil.
1: Thank you.